the Reverend Jimmy Brock. Uh, Jimmy is uh, a church planter with the PCA. He's one of our guys that we have called who is planting a church uh, in the Red Mill area. And uh, so Jimmy is, uh, has become a good friend of mine. We went to the same high school together. Uh, he not at the same time. Not at the well. No, <laughs> I don't think you needed to so quickly comment on. Could have happened. All right, listen to Jimmy. But uh, you know, I actually had Jimmy scheduled a while ago. I try to take a break every seven to nine weeks so you can get a different, uh, uh, you know, different uh, take on the gospel. I, I broke my elbow last week, and so I, I took a break last week. Uh, a different sort of break. But I had Jimmy on the schedule, and I thought, you know, when you got a blue chip uh, in your stable, uh, you, you bring him out. So, uh, Jimmy, we're excited to have you. Thanks for being with us. Thank you. Um, I, I might try. Uh, I'm, I'm afraid I'm not as funny as Carlos, though. Uh, another church a couple weeks ago, somebody told me I was funny, but, but Carlos is uh, he, he's, he's a step above. So, um, But yes, uh, like Carlos said, uh, for those of you who haven't met me, uh, my name is Jimmy, and I am uh, really glad to be here with you today. Uh, my family and I, we moved to the southern part of Virginia Beach, down in the Red Mill Princess Anne area, right at the uh, intersection of General Booth and Nemo Parkway. You know where that is. Uh, we moved there at the end of November, so we're, uh, we're starting to find our way around, starting to figure out what's going on here, really enjoying it, loving it. Um, and as Carlos said, I'm a, I'm a church planter, where he came here to begin a brand new church. Um, down in that part of Virginia Beach, and uh, we're enjoying that. Uh, we're having a great time getting to know people, connecting with people. We've just started hosting a neighborhood Bible study in our home. Uh, we're hoping to see that happen not only in our home, but in other homes and other neighborhoods. See more and more people get engaged together, like Carlos was saying, uh, to, study, to study his word together, um, to connect with one another and to connect with God. I would love for you to help us uh, in two ways. Uh, there's two ways that you can help. One is to pray for us. Uh, certainly you can pray for us on your own as you think of it. But also if you would like to get updates about what we're doing and specific prayer requests and that kind of thing, there is uh, over in the fellowship area, uh, there's a, a little poster and a clipboard that has a sign-up sheet. If you put your email on that, then I will add you to our list to get prayer updates. Um, there's also a little bit more information over there. The other thing that you can do for us is to help connect us with other people. If you know people down in the Southern Virginia Beach area who would be interested uh, in finding out about a new church, or maybe not interested in finding out a new church, but just interested in connecting with other people, um, and might be interested in coming to a neighborhood Bible study where they can connect with other people in their neighborhood and explore God's Word with other people, then definitely let me know. Uh, help me connect with them and get to know them and reach out to them. So you can pray for us. And you can connect people with us. Um, and that's what I would ask uh, for your help and your support as we try to get this new church started down in Southern Virginia Beach. Uh, but now let's turn our attention to God's Word in 1 John chapter 1. Uh, it's there in your bulletin, or if you have a Bible, you can turn there. And as you turn there, as we get ready to read it, uh, I wonder if you ever have this feeling when you get a text or an email or a phone call or somebody just says something to you that that isn't particularly new, and you think, why, why are you telling me this? What, what have I done, or what am I not seeing that you felt the need to, to call me and tell me this? And you kind of have that, 
that wondering. It's actually it's a good question to ask. What's behind this communication? And as we get to the beginning of 1 John, we can wonder that uh, in this letter. This is a letter written by John, the disciple of Jesus, probably 40, maybe 50 years even. It's been a little while since Jesus died. Uh, John lived for a long time. He moved from Jerusalem. He moved out to Asia and he was pastoring and sharing the gospel out there and had built up a community of believers. And presumably that was who this letter was written to. And he starts off with this, that as you read it, you might think, but, but why, John? Why are, you, why are you telling us that? Why is this what matters? And so that's what I want you to listen to as we read just four verses, and then we'll explore them a little bit more. So this is 1 John chapter 1, starting at verse 1. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life, the life was made manifest, and we have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you, you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Uh, we thank you that you give it to us that we may know you. And we pray now that you would speak to us by the power of your Holy Spirit and that you would take your word and sink it deep in our hearts that we might know you better this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, there's a book on my bookshelf that's called The Historical Figure of Jesus. And when I first saw this book, I thought, oh, that's interesting. That's pretty neat. I want to read about the historical figure of Jesus. He was a historical figure. I'd like to read this book about him. Well, when you get into the book, uh, you discover, if, if, you're not, if you hadn't been familiar with this before, that it might not be exactly what you were expecting in the historical, when you see the historical figure of Jesus. Because this book is part of a tradition of ideas going back about 200 years called the quest for the historical Jesus. It sounds wonderful, except there's a problem with this quest for the historical Jesus. The whole basis of this quest is trying to figure out who Jesus really was. And it's, it's based on the idea that, that the Bible doesn't, doesn't necessarily tell us the whole story. So we have, to, we have to fill in the gaps and figure out who Jesus really was before people kind of added stuff to it and made up stories about him and that kind of thing. Who was the real Jesus? Well, the funny thing, so there was, this started about 200 years ago, the late 18th century, and then throughout the 1800s and the 1900s, and it kind of, it comes and goes. Sometimes people work on this for a while, and they produce these articles and these books about their new understandings of who Jesus really was. The problem is, as many people have observed, the descriptions of Jesus often end up looking mu very much like the questers themselves. So somebody who has a bit of a, a, a revolutionary bent, somehow, mysteriously, they start looking at all the evidence and they say, wow, Jesus was a revolutionary. And somebody who thinks it's all about them and their personal uh, understanding of God, they look at Jesus and say, well, he, he was all about a personal understanding of God. Somebody who thinks the end of the world is coming, they look at Jesus and say, 
He was all about the end of the world coming. And in all this, all this attempt to be scientific and historical and objective, and yet when you look at it, all these quests end up looking like the questers themselves. And they create Jesus in their own image. And he looks just like them. And it's easy for me to stand here and look at them, and for most of us look at them and see that that's kind of silly. Until we realize that we kind of do this ourselves. That many times we make up, we kind of, whether intentionally or unintentionally, we are very prone to make up our own version of Christianity and say, this is what Christianity is all about. It's all about me and Jesus. Or it's all about just me and getting together with people I like at church. Or it's all about being a good person. Or yeah, all, all religions are about the same and my, mine is Christianity, but Christianity, Judaism, Islam, they, they all teach about the same thing. They're all saying we should all be good. But this is not a new problem. This problem did not start with us today. It did not start in 1800. This is what John is, is writing about. Is this idea that we can just make up for ourselves who Jesus is and what Christianity is all about. That's when we say, what, John, why are you writing it? Why are you emphasizing that which we have heard, we have seen with our eyes, we have looked upon, and have touched with our hands? We've seen, and we have touched, and we have heard. John is saying that there was something real. He's saying, hey, Christians, people who are following Jesus, I, John, I was there. I saw him. I touched him. I heard exactly what he said, and and we don't get to just make it up for ourselves. There was something very, very real. And so this is at the core of Christianity, is this message from John. And he's addressing the problem that we, we kind of, you know, Jesus can seem distant and can seem removed. And so we have this temptation to fill in the gaps and to make things up for ourselves and to make Jesus and make Christianity whatever we want it to be. And John says, no. We have to ground ourselves in the reality of Jesus who came in the flesh and was a real person and said things, he said things and he did things that cannot be denied. And we have to start from that firm reality and then we go from there. And so as we look at what, at what John lays out just in these four, first four verses, we see a who and we see a how and then we see a so what of the implications of that Jesus came in the flesh and that John himself was really able to touch him and hear him and listen and, and see him. So we have a who and a how and a so what. And they're on two different pieces of paper. So sorry about that. Um, so first, the who. The first thing John tells us with the implications that Jesus came in the flesh and that John himself saw it and could talk about what he had heard and seen is that we can know God. That's the who. We can know him. Not just know about him, not just know some principles that he said, but we can know Jesus. We can know God in a real and personal way. In the same way that I know Carlos and have become friends with Carlos, we can know God. And just sit back and think about that for a minute and how amazing that is. And when you're tempted to think that, oh, all, all religions are about the same. No, no, they're not. No, they're not. Because yes, 
there are from the mouth of Jesus and from the words of the prophets in the Old Testament, we do get some laws and some principles and some right living, but, but that's not what Christianity is all about. Fundamentally, John says, he came. I touched him. I saw him. We proclaim to you the eternal life. In verse 3, at the end of verse 3, indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. It's our fellowship with the Father. We can know him. We can have a relationship with him. We can have a shared experience, fellowship, community with God himself. Not just about him, not just as his servants trying to carry things out, but we have fellowship with God himself. The God who created the universe. The God who set all things in motion. The God who watches over all things. John says, no, he has really happened. God came down to earth. I saw him. I touched him. I heard him. God himself came down to earth. And we can have a relationship with him. And this is, this is really beyond, there, there is no analogy, there is no illustration that can really do justice to the enormity of God himself coming to earth. But sometimes we, we can think a little bit, uh, some things to, to relate to that. I was reading uh, this past week several accounts of several tributes to First Lady Barbara Bush who died this week. And of course all the tributes were to ama- how, what an amazing woman she was and how many great things she had done, and how many people she had touched. But one of the ones that stood out to me was actually from a staffer, a low le- who at, at that time was kind of a low-level staffer for George H.W. Bush as the vice president. And he would often go and do, if the vice president and Mrs. Bush were traveling, this staffer would go and he would do the advance work, and he would, he would work on setting things up, setting up appointments and that kind of thing, including sometimes part of the schedule for Mrs. Bush. And so he would have to go and tell her, Mrs. Bush, this is, this is what you're doing. And he was kind of a, he was young, he was a low-level staffer. And so he would always introduce himself. He would never presume that she, would, that she, Mrs. Bush, the wife of the vice president, would know who he, this 20, 30-year-old staffer, was. So he would introduce himself. And finally, after the fourth or fifth time, she looked at him and she said, I'm not senile. I know who you are. Just, just say hello. Um, and she knew him. And he, and he continued to say that she didn't, she didn't hold that against him. She didn't, she just, it became kind of a joke between them. She said, Mrs. Bush was the kind of person who cared, who cared about people. She, she probably, she, she probably knew, you, she knew your name and she probably knew your parents' name too. And she wanted to know what you were reading and how your parents were doing. She wanted to know you as a person. And what struck me about that was not only the idea of somebody who, in our terms, seemed far off, the wife of the vice president, having, relation, having knowledge and personal relationship with people who were below, but that it was not on that staffer to make himself known to Mrs. Bush. It was that Mrs. Bush came and entered into his world and was interested in him. And of course, that comes nowhere close to what God himself has done, but just a little taste that reminded me of it that God himself has, has made himself known to us, that we might have fellowship with the Father. So what does that mean for us? What does that mean for us in practical terms? If you're exploring Christianity, if you're interested, if you're here today and you're like, I, I'm, I'm not really Christian, I don't, 
I don't know about this stuff. I'm not sure I believe. Maybe you've been in church before and it was not a good experience. Maybe you've never been in church before, but you're kind of checking this thing out. Know that this is the heart of Christianity. That God himself came to earth to have a relationship with us. Yes, there are, impact, there are applications to our life and there is a way that we should live, but that's not the heart of Christianity. It's not about cleaning yourself up and following the rules and doing everything right. It's not all, even about loving others and serving others as, as good as that is and as important as that is. It's about a relationship with God himself that we may have fellowship with God, with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. That's what Christianity is all about. And you can find him and know him through his word. And this holds, I said, if if you're not a Christian, if you are a Christian, it's really the same thing. What is your faith all about? What does your Christianity mean to you? It's about a relationship with Jesus through his word. That's what John says. He says, we proclaim to you the eternal life. He wrote it down. We, are not, we were not there 2,000 years ago to see Jesus and touch him. But John was, and he wrote it down for us so that we could know with confidence that Jesus really came. And it was passed down carefully through the centuries, preserved for us the words of Jesus, the actions of Jesus, that we could have a relationship with him through the words of those who were actually there. And, trust, and trusting in that relationship, in those words, to know Jesus, to have fellowship with him is so important that as I thought about this new church that we're starting and what is our mission as a church. A couple weeks ago, I was working with another pastor on on a mission statement and we came up with to connect the people of Southern Virginia Beach to God and one another through his word, person to person and neighborhood by neighborhood. But that through his word, it's a little bit clunky really. It doesn't really roll off the tongue. But it's so, so important that this is how we connect to God is through his word. This is how we can know him and know who he really is. This is what our faith is all about, is meeting God in his word and getting to know him better in a personal way. But not just knowing him through his word, but also one another. I said there was a who that John gives us and then there's a how. And the how, so we connect to God, but how? We connect it through his word, but through one another. If you notice this, somebody, as I was reading some about this passage, I was reading other pastors' thoughts on this and point out that in verse 3, if you look at verse 3, that's, that which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and his Son, Jesus Christ. And he points out that there's, there's a significance there that John says first, so that your fellowship may be with us, that you may have fellowship with us. You would think, uh, most of the time, we think about it the other way around. Because we have fellowship with God, we also have fellowship with one another. And that's absolutely true. It does all start with God, and it flows from him. But in this instance, by reversing it, John's pointing out that, really, we only know God accurately together with other people. We have the word, but we are we are easily confused people. And it's very easy for us, like those, those quests for the historical Jesus, it's easy just to look at the Bible and still get it, get it wrong when we're looking at it just on our own. And so John says, no, it's together. 
It's together as a community, together as a church family, together as a church, as believers throughout all of history that we look to God's word together and we know God together. So yes, absolutely, we have a personal, individual relationship with God, but we know him best as we come to him with other people so that our own ideas can get shaped and, and, and uh, fashioned by his word, by the input of other people. I love reading the Bible together with other people so that I can hear their perspective and I can see things like, oh, I didn't realize that that's what that meant. That when you see it that way, and now I, that makes a lot of sense. I understand this better now. We read the Bible on our own, we read it together with other people, and we come to God through a community. That's the how. We connect to God himself and his son, Jesus Christ. How? By knowing one another. So it goes both ways. That's how we connect to God is with one another, and our relationship to God flows into our relationship with other people. If we love him, we will love one another. We have fellowship with him. We have fellowship with one another. Our real fellowship, real community, real connection comes through a shared commitment to God, a shared commitment to a relationship with God, and then we have something in common. It's amazing to think about that I could go all throughout the world and I could find people who I have no connection with except that we share a connection to God to God and to his son, Jesus Christ. And because of that, I can have fellowship with them. I can go anywhere in the world and I can find other Christian believers and we'll feel that connection. We'll have something in common and we can have fellowship with one another. And Jesus actually talks about this in, a, in a, uh, what I think is a beautiful verse. At first, it's not so beautiful. But this is back in Mark, uh, when Jesus was speaking in Mark chapter 10, verse 29. Uh, This is after Jesus told the rich young ruler that he should give up everything and follow him. Um, And the rich young ruler was not not pleased with that idea of giving up everything. And Jesus' disciples say, but Lord, we've given up a lot. He says, oh yeah, yeah you have. Jesus said, this is verse 20, Mark chapter 10, verse 29. Jesus said, truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands, for my sake and for the gospel, who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions, and in the age to come, eternal life. So Jesus says to his disciples, yes, you have given up a lot, but you know what? Everybody who has given up a lot will receive it back a hundred times. And this is not just, this is not some kind of cheap magic trick or like crazy investment decision like here, put in a dollar and you're going to get a hundred. This is not Jesus' pyramid scheme. This is not, you know, give up everything, but it's going to work out for you somehow. This is the reality of Christian community. That Jesus says, yes, sometimes following him means you will walk away from things that are dear to you. Sometimes you will give up a house. You will give up land. You will give up money. You will have to move away from family, from brothers and sisters and fathers and mothers. But when you do, when you're following me, you have fellowship with one another. You have fellowship with other believers. You get a new family. You can go somewhere else and stay. I said I could 
go all around the world and meet people I had a connection with, and they would welcome me into their homes. Say, here, here is a house for you. Fellow believer in Jesus, fellow follower of Jesus, you can stay in my home. My wife and I have never, in, in all of our marriage, uh, we've been married for 13 years now, and we're now about three or to four hours away from our parents. This is the closest we've ever lived. We've lived across the country. We've lived halfway across the country. We've lived a day's drive away. And so we've rarely been with extended family for holidays. But we have had such rich holidays with fellow Christians, experiencing the community of brothers and sisters and fathers and mothers as people come into our house for Christmas or Thanksgiving or Easter and we eat together and we celebrate together because we are a new community and we have that. We've received what we've given up in moving away for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of following his call, we've received back a hundred times. So what does that mean for each one of us? We, we need to take our community and our fellowship seriously. We can embrace the fellowship that we have with one another. How do we do that? Sometimes that means letting people serve you. If you're in need, there are people here in this body who, will ha- who want to help, who want to, to serve you, who want to care for you in times of need. When you need somebody to take care of your kids, when you need somebody to bring you a meal, when you need somebody just to listen, embrace that. It's not a sign of weakness. Maybe, I mean, it is a sign of weakness, but it's a real weakness. It's a weakness that we are called to, to acknowledge that we are weak and that we need one another. God has given us a community, a community of other Christians who are connected to him, We have fellowship with God and with His Son, and so we have fellowship with one another. And that plays out in real and tangible ways that you can see and touch. Just as Jesus came to earth to be seen and touched and heard, we see and touch one another. As we ask for help, as we say, as we ask for connection, and then go and not only embrace your own weakness and your need for other people, but offer that to others, to go and connect with them to reach out to them, say, hey, I don't know a lot of people here. I would like to know more. I would like to have a real and deeper connection. We can reach out. This is why, again, in our, as I said in our, our mission statement for our new church, we're studying, we want to connect people to God through his word. And we want to do it through these neighborhood Bible studies. This is our, our vision for how the new church will grow and form into a new community a community of people who are studying God's word together, caring about each other, involved in each other's lives, when they know that when somebody is hurting, when somebody needs help, when they celebrate together. The Bible says that we rejoice with those who rejoice and we mourn with those who mourn. That's what true Christian fellowship and connection looks like. So if that's the who and the how, that we have fellowship with God, how, through our fellowship with one another. Then there's also the so what, because John tacks something else here, tacks on something else in verse four. We are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. And that our joy that John is talking about, he's not talking about our, like a collective writer or the first person. He's saying our, all of us, me and you, him and his hearers, that all of our joy may be complete complete our joy may be filled up our joy may be finished why where is where does our joy comes come from our joy here john says our joy comes from the confidence that jesus came in the flesh 
that this is not just a mirage. This is not just some ideas that we've made up or some crazy thing that we're all just kind of guessing about. That to be a Christian, to be part of a church, to be part of a community is based on something real and solid and tangible. That Jesus came in the flesh. Jesus revealed himself. He's real. He's solid. We can be sure of that. And so what, what does that look like? What does that do for us? Think about the joy of knowing that something is done. Think about what robs you of your joy. In some ways, the, the opposite of joy and freedom is anxiety and holding back. And so often that anxiety comes from uncertainty. We don't know what's going to happen. We don't know what the future holds. We don't know if things are really what I think they are. If these relationships are, are really, really real. Do these people really care about me? Is this job going to hold? Am I going to keep getting paid? Are we going to have enough money? Are we going to get sick? What's going to happen? All those things lead to anxiety. And that steals our joy and our freedom in Christ. But when that becomes certain, when we know what's going to happen, then we feel free and joyful. And the, the picture that comes to mind is not, it's not necessarily the most appropriate picture. But when I was in college, uh, in my college, everybody had to write a senior thesis. A big, big, big paper. It was a whole college class, and it was in our last semester. So we're talking papers of, at the very short end, because I wrote a math paper with a lot of equations in it. Uh, mine was a mere 15 pages. But it was 15 pages of math, which is not fun to write. Um, but other people were writing 50 pages, 70 pages, 200 pages for their thesis. And it was this cloud that hung over you. In some cases, for the last several years of college, or at least for that semester, you'd see stressed out and anxious seniors trying to finish their thesis, finish their thesis. Because without that, you don't graduate. Everybody has to write a thesis. And so what happened when those theses were done when they were turned in, we got them bound up professionally. We stacked them up in the registrar's office. And uh, because my college was a little weird, they gave us each a bottle of champagne. And we took our bottles of champagne and we jumped in the fountain. There's a big fountain in the middle of campus. And you can see, if you, if you Google CMC fountain uh, party, you can find pictures of this on the internet of college students in this big fountain in the middle of campus popping bottles of champagne celebrating in complete freedom because it's done. Because it's done. That thesis was turned in. And nobody, nobody ever failed their thesis. It just had to be done. Right? Once it was done, you knew it was done and you knew you were going to graduate. College was finished. There was no more anxiety about finishing college, about finishing everything out, because it was done. Joy, celebration. How much more so for us who know that life in the end, it's done. It's finished. Because Jesus came in the flesh. Jesus died on the cross. Jesus rose from the dead. Said, I have dealt with sin. Your sins have been forgiven because I died. And sin and death have been taken away because I rose from the dead. And that's what John says. John, Jesus' disciple, even 50 years later was saying, I saw him. I saw him die. I saw him after he came back from the grave. I touched him. I talked with him. I ate fish with him. After Jesus came back, this really happened. 
And because Jesus really rose from the dead, even with all the mess that we see now in our lives, even with all the uncertainty in the world that is real and legitimate and painful, Jesus says, in the end, it's finished. Death is ended. I, will live, I am living forever. I will make you live forever if you put your trust in me. If you have fellowship with me, if you have fellowship with all of the people who follow me, you will live forever. That is certain. And so John says, our joy is complete because Jesus has finished it. He has come and this is real and this is done. It is solid and secure that our ultimate destiny, despite all the mess in this world, our ultimate destiny is with Him in fellowship with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ, and with one another forever. And that is the beautiful picture of heaven. That because Jesus came in the flesh, John tells us the who. We have fellowship with God Himself and His Son, Jesus Christ. The how, through one another. And our fellowship with one another is based on our fellowship with Him. So what? Our joy may be complete. And when later on John talks in Revelation about his picture of heaven, his vision of heaven, of what life forever will look like, it's all the body of believers, all the Christians, all those who have trusted in Jesus and are following him, surrounding the throne together in a beautiful new city where they have fellowship with one another and most importantly, fellowship with the Father and with his Son. That's what Christianity is all about. It's that fellowship with the Father and with the Son through the community of believers. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for your word. Uh, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you that Jesus came in the flesh that we might know him. We thank you for the words of John and the other apostles who wrote down what they saw, what they touched, what they heard, that we might have confidence and that our joy might be complete. We pray that you would give us that joy today, this week, and as we go forward to serve and love you and love one another, that we would do so in joy. Amen. We now have uh, the point in our sermon where we uh, take up our offering. Um, and you know what? Uh, in our worship and praise for what Jesus has done for us, this offering is part of that, uh, that feeling that we all have and that, that Jimmy talked about. Our joy is complete because Jesus Christ has done everything for us that needs to be done. And therefore, in worship and praise and admiration for God for what he has done in our lives, we express our complete joy by giving. Uh, if we have uh, visitors here today,